Hi, Dan. How are you? Super swell. I was just eating uh, eating the peeps. Do you ever eat a peeps? No, I don't like them. You don't like them? I don't like them. No, they're like your thing. Yeah, it's like a fluffer nutter. I don't, you know, marshmallow is not where I go when I'm looking for delight. Yeah, yeah. I have to have a peeps. Peeps, peeps are. If you if you gave me a peeps and almost any other snack, I would choose the other snack. But definitely at Easter time when you have chocolate eggs everywhere, why you would eat a peeps? I have no idea. They're too the chocolate eggs, like the Cadbury cream eggs, I find to be uh, way too sweet. Yeah, nobody's saying anything about a Cadbury cream egg though. You mean like a solid uh, chocolate? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like a lint chocolate ball. L i n d t. Yeah, those yeah, are good. Yeah. Or you know what? Peanut butter cups. This is this is the, the one season other than Halloween where it feels like those single serving little Reese's peanut butter cups uh, are are like proliferated. Mm-hmm. I'll eat those so many. <laughs> there was a there was a little there was a little bodega. What in Anchorage we called a quick stop. That was on the way home from school, on the way home from junior high, not yeah. even on the way home from high school, but on the way home from junior high, I had to walk past this little quick stop. This was the quick stop where um, there were always two video games there. And and one time, I'm sure I told this story, maybe I said uh, told it to Merlin, but one time I got my thumb cut or thumb, thumb caught in the steering wheel of a, of a road rally game and... It was. I had put my thumb in the um, in the little punch outs uh, on the, the 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 steering wheel sort of supports. Right. Well, how would you say that? It's a racing steering wheel, and it had little circular cutouts in the yeah. in the uh, the arms. And I had stuck my thumbs in there as I was driving in my you know excitement. And then when I got done with the game, my thumb had swelled up, and I couldn't get it out of the. <laughs> hole <laughs> that's some intense gaming there it was and so and i really couldn't and so you know all my friends sat there with me and tried to get it out for a while the guy came around um from behind the counter and we all worked on it and pretty soon my friends were like well we have to go and so they left and then i was stuck there and then every customer that came in had their own like special remedy a woman was like oh he get some dish soap from the back and we'll you know we'll soap up his thumb and it'll slip right out right. dish soap didn't work somebody got some ice from the pop machine and tried to ice my thumb down it didn't work and you know the sun went down uh <laughs> that and then it was e- evening yeah and you know i'm just sitting there the whole time thumb stuck in there you know kind of having interesting conversations with the people that were coming into the quick stop. Uh, the guy behind the counter got tired of me pretty fast, but I was there for several hours before it was night. And I, you know, my, my mom was going to be home from work and, and, um, and eventually the guy was like, well, what should I do? And I was like, I don't know, call the fire department. Right. And he did. And the fire department came in a fire truck and they got out and they worked on my thumb for a while and they couldn't get it out of the machine either. And so one of the firemen came with a with a pair of like bolt cutters 
those bolt cutters that are four feet long. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like you would get through like a, like a huge padlock with. Yeah. And they cut the steering wheel on both sides so that then my thumb had this strut, this, you know, piece of stainless steel (laughs) strut on either side, but I was free of the machine. And then they used that bolt cutter to like actually cut the, cut a little pie shape out of the, out of the metal so that it freed my thumb. You know, by this point in time, of course, my thumb was three inches around. Oh God. It was really traumatic, but that quick stop. And I, I didn't stop going in there. You know, the next time I went in, they had changed the game out and I was like, ha ha ha. And the guy behind the counter was like, ha ha ha. Don't do that again. It was all, all my friends thought it was real funny. It was just one. I was kind of a, you know, everybody talks about being a dork when they were young. Mm -hmm. I was like a, it was always a kind of clownish figure, you know, like my friends always felt like, what's he going to do now? And it's not, it, it, it was, it was seldom like what kind of fun, crazy thing is he going to do so much as it was like, what kind of like nutty jam up is he going to get into? You know, it was like, a, I was a Mr. Magoo or a, you know, or an inspector Clouseau, just like a, like somebody that if there was a banana peel, I would find it and slip on it. But this quick stop had, it was the first time I'd ever seen them. It had a little bastic by the cash register (laughs) where those little peanut butter cups were five cents each. And, you know, five cents was an amount of money I could, I could readily lay hands upon because video games were 25 cents, right? So everybody had quarters I never wanted to spend that much money on video games, but I, but, and the idea that one video game would get you five of these perfect Reese's peanut butter cups. I mean, this is why I've struggled with my weight my whole life and I've never been good at video games because in that economy, in this economy, yeah, the idea that, I mean, for me, five peanut butter cups outweighed the fun of any video game. And it's not like I sat and ate 50 of them instead of playing video games. I was, the way, John, I was completely the opposite of that. I would have gone, I would have gone without food, not hmm. just, not just the luxury food of like a peanut butter cup, but like I would have, and I frequently did. My friends would go and spend their money on, you know, the hot dogs and popcorn and stuff or curly fries at the mall. And I'd be like, this is video game money. You guys are nuts. <laughs> I would get my, I, listen, I would get my, um, after my parents got a divorce, when I, I forget what age this happened, but my dad would send me money every month and it wasn't the child support money. It was like his extension of my allowance. Uh And I think that it was about $15 a month I would get a check. Yeah. And I think it was an automatic check, like from, like it would come from his paycheck to me. And because it was like a computerized, you know, it was like a check that was like printed from a bank type thing instead of like he didn't handwrite it out. I like and that he gave you 15 bucks a month so that it was, it became a, a somewhat complicated math problem to figure out how much per week your allowance was. Well, yeah, but that didn't matter because I had, I, I would get it and I would spend it 100% of it immediately. I would go to the Don Carter's All-Star Lanes, which was a... Uh, bowling alley that was I could ride my bike to mm-hmm. and they had really good arcade games in there uh, and I would 
instantaneously, I would cash that check. I had my own bank account, which I think I had about $100 in. And I would cash the check on the way to the arcade at Don Carter's All-Star Lanes. And I would spend all $15 of it as fast as I could on the video Wow. Yeah. Because, you know, what, what he was giving you effectively was 15 video games a week. Well, back but in you're those saying, days, they were a quarter. Right. Well, that, that's right. But So what you're saying is that you would play 60 video games right out of the gate. That's right. As fast as you could. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't like prorate your oh. allowance over the course. 15 a week. I still had my that's regular allowance. Um, my regular allowance was probably... This was just video game money. In the neighborhood of $3 a week, 3 to 5 depending on like what chores I did or didn't do. And right. and so that, that's that, what was, he was that was like not the money I spent on the video games. But the 15 bucks was... And I mean, a gauntlet was a big game at the time. Afterburner. Yes. Do, 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 tell me this are video you just said video games were only a quarter then are they more than a quarter now yes most of them are unless you're at a, like a vintage arcade where they're keeping the original prices or where you get but yeah uh, most video games now like a newer video game like if you went to like a um like a modern day arcade i'm I, even a chuck e cheese most games are like 50 cents to a dollar some are more and there, most of the games that you have now, you have to just keep feeding quarters into to continue to play. Like you might get a race for a dollar, but then you want to, you don't, if you don't win it, which you never do, then it's at like another dollar to play again or a 50 cents more. Uh, there are the, a lot of these shooting games where you have to keep pumping in quarters because you'll run out of ammo unless you keep pumping in quarters. So I don't really go to the arcades anymore. They're, unless it's I like see. a vintage arcade, in which case, yeah, definitely. When I see a when I see a video game every once in a while, I'll walk past a pizza parlor, look in. Oh, there's a video game. If it's more than twenty five cents, I'm appalled and oh, yeah. and walk out. Appalling. But that, but um, but when I think about it, that's kind of crazy because, um, twenty five cents in nineteen eighty two dollars. And twenty five cents in two thousand twenty dollars. They're very different twenty five cents. Yeah. Uh, but for, for somehow we thought that they were worth. Uh, they were worth twenty five cents then. I guess they were. Let's see. Let's see what it says when I type in nineteen eighty two dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, a value of uh, well, this is the inflation calculator. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. A hundred dollars in nineteen eighty two money is worth two hundred and seventy three two thousand two dollars. That's kind of amazing, That's right? Wouldn't day, you say? Yeah, I would. So, um, so that means you know a quarter uh, was worth like sixty cents or something, right? Yep. Um, hang on. Let's, I'll go along let's with see. That. that sounds about right to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost seventy cents. So, huh? Yeah. I guess I shouldn't. I shouldn't be. Um, I shouldn't be so fussy about paying seventy dollars for some video game. But you're right. It's the it's the uh, it's the eel principle. They just they get you they get you hooked, and then there's like put in another dollar, put in another dollar. I just never got. I never. I didn't have that. We've talked about this a lot before. Money meant so much more to me than anything that money could buy. 
that uh, that I just couldn't get into those economies. See, and I, game I, I totally understand that, and it was an unreasonable amount of money, but that was the only thing that I spent money on. I, I never, right. I never bought. Like I didn't have like things really. I didn't, you know, like I had friends that would go and they like they were always getting they were always getting tapes, you know, they were always getting new cassette tapes. Um, a new band would come out with a new album, and I'd be like, "Well, I'll just hear it on the radio. I'm not gonna like spend money on like music if it's on the radio. Like that's crazy. What right. would I do that for? Um, and of course, you know, there's lots of reasons you would do that. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't really buy music either because, again, only, I mean, money was so much more important than anything it could buy, including really anything. Right. Money was its own, owning money right. was the thing I was interested in. Boy, I had to fight that, you know, in the same way that you had to fight your germophobia. Yeah. I really had to fight that over years and years and years of just like, no, money is not the only thing you want to own you need to be able to spend money yet. You need to learn to spend money. That's been, that's, that's, that was hard for me to do. And then once I got past it, you know, I, then I had to learn to, um, not be prolific it, right. You sure. know, to, to, um, but you know, managing money, that is a, that's hard for everybody. And I always yeah. felt like it was good for, uh, it was easy for me because I just didn't spend it, but that's not the like, same well, as managing. Well, you weren't, you weren't saving the money all, were you saving it all? Yep. Saving it all. Um, I, uh, and I think it was, I think at, at some point I, I started to equate money with, um, travel, and so I spent a lot of the money that I saved when I was young traveling. You know, the 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 times I crossed the United States, the times I went to Europe right. before I went before I went as a musician, when I was doing those things as as high adventure. Ah, uh, yes, of course. You know, I didn't have I didn't have that much money, but yeah. but you know, if I slept outside, if I hitchhiked, I could make that money last. And so all that money I saved as a young person not playing video games is what I used to survive when I was hitchhiking around the country when I was younger, you know, in 18, 19, 20, 21. Right. And then at some point I started to think of money. I never really thought of money as things, uh, as being, um, uh, representing things that I could buy. Later on, the really troubling time was when I started to equate money with freedom from work. Oh. If I saved money, then I could then I could not work for periods of time. See, uh, this this kind of thing always fascinated me because I knew I knew people. I had friends that would do that. They would like, like they they would work, and the point of working was to get a month get money almost like in a pile. Like they wanted the money to come in a pile, then they would use the money that was in that pile and, um, and until it was gone and they'd be like, well, the pile's almost gone, but I better go do something to get more money to put back in the pile again. And, and for me, it was always more about like the consistency of it. Like I work 15 hours, 20 hours a week at my part-time job and I save that money until I, well, I mean, I get my paycheck and then maybe I save it, maybe I spend it, maybe I do whatever, but 
it was always more about like the steady income that made me feel good as opposed as opposed to uh like getting the lump sum and then working it until it was gone right i don't know does that make sense it does yeah i think that some of that was during my during my drinking years what i really wanted to do was drink and every once in a while i had to work because I would get so in Dutch to everybody and I would be, you know, I'd get kicked out of wherever I was living and I would be in this, in this situation where I had just scraped the bottom of every barrel. Right. And it was like, you need to get a job, dude. And so I would go get a job. And once I got a job, I was, I tried to be a good worker, you know, like I would get a job and I'd be interested in what the new job was and interested in those people. And, interested in putting on a good face so i'd scrub up and i'd get you know i'd i'd uh wear clean clothes you know i knew how to iron a shirt um usually i was doing that stuff on borrowed time though you know like i would come over to somebody's house and be like can i use your iron they'd be like "Ugh, you again you know all right fine you can use the iron like it like you know my friends or people that i knew were always hoping that i would get my shit together so if i was like can i use your iron they (laughs) would say yeah okay you can use our iron you know like good i'm glad that you're finally taking this seriously and i you know iron my shirt and go to work for a while and but i would save that money every every check i got i would just pay out as little as i possibly could against whatever debts i'd accrued and and you know, living in that top ramen, the college top ramen economy, but it wasn't. I wasn't saving that money to buy albums. I'll tell you that I was saving it, just stuffing it in a sock, mm-hmm. because I knew I was going to lose that job. I knew I was going to get fired, and that when that happened, I needed as you know much of a cushion as I could. I could get you know to to tied me through that that next long period where I didn't want to have to work. It was a pretty shabby life. Um, but it was because Seattle was a small town and it was a community of punk rockers and rock and rollers and everybody was sort of a drug addict or whatnot. There was a stone soup sensibility. Right. It's not like I was living in a it's not like I was living in Harvard Yard and and wandering around. And you know, I was in a I was in a community of people that were already struggling to get by for various reasons. A lot of it was that they were you know, they were also working the same shitty jobs I was and they were spending their money in stupid ways. They were just spending their money in stupid ways. I mean, probably on video games, right? Or on certainly on on drugs, but also on albums and studs for their leather jackets. I mean, I don't know. My friend, my friend, Mike Squires spent every penny that, and he always had a great job, but he never had any money because if he saw, if he walked past a shop and looked in the window and he saw something he liked, some feather boa or hat with a skull on it, he would buy it. He'd walk in and buy it. Wouldn't even haggle with them. I was going through a box of papers a couple of years ago, some papers that, you know, had accumulated and I found a check business papers. Mm -hmm. 
I found a check, not a check stub, but an uncashed check (laughs) for like $350. (laughs) Nice. From 1993. And I looked at this check and was trying to imagine how, what set of fucked up circumstances would have allowed me to let $350 go un, uncashed. Seriously? And I couldn't, I couldn't put it together because $350 was a massive amount of money to me then. It represented, and I knew the, I knew the business that the check had come from. I, so I remembered the time. And I know that at that point in time, there wasn't any, uh, there wasn't any way that, uh, that I wouldn't have, that that $350 wouldn't have been an incredible boon to me. And I think what happened, so I was just looking at this check and the impossibility of it. I mean, it's one thing that I would have dropped it and lost it, mm-hmm. but the idea that it would be, uh, that, that I would have had it this whole time. And the thing was, it was in an envelope. It was, I hadn't opened the envelope. When I found the envelope, I was like, huh, that's weird. What's this? And opened it. And this check was inside. Right. And I think what happened, I was working at this company and I had, you know, I'd called in sick uh, uh, way more times than you could get away with calling in sick. And I'd used borderline going to be fired for it or. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was already on really at the end of my uh, tenure at this place. And I'd been, I'd worked at this job for, for quite a while. I'd developed relationships with everybody there. I still have, I'm still friends with a guy that I met at this job. Uh, It was at a stock brokerage. And I briefly went through a period where I was like, maybe I'll be a stock broker, you know, and I kind of shadowed, some brokers around trying to figure out if this was a job that I would like and decided that it absolutely definitely was not a job that I wanted. But, you know, I, but I had appeared at work pretty, I, I went to a work party one time where I was all messed up. I, that was the job I was working when Kurt Cobain died. Mm. And, you know, and, and the news came over the radio and I was sitting at my, you know, little terminal working on something and, and the news came over the radio and everybody in the office all kind of looked over at me and I just sort of stared at my typewriter for a while. And then I just stood up and put on my coat and said, well, I guess I'm done for today. And they were all like, that's fine. Mm-hmm. That seems, that seems reasonable given the situation. I mean, you know, it was a strange time to think that a bunch of people in an office building would say, huh, this rock star killed himself maybe the kid that's sitting at the typewriter with the soul patch and the combat boots maybe we shouldn't maybe we shouldn't yell at him (laughs) we should let him go home if you want maybe he should be able to go home yeah we would like to say thank you very much to express vpn so we all know how express vpn protects your privacy and security online right but there's something that you might not know you can also use express vpn to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries what it's true So many of us are stuck at home, right? Like that's just what's going on right now. And it's only a matter of time until you run out of stuff to watch on Netflix. So this whole last week, I've been using ExpressVPN to binge Star Trek Discovery using the UK Netflix. That's right. You can watch all of these really cool shows that maybe aren't available in the country that you might be standing in right now. And it's so easy to do. You just fire up ExpressVPN app. I change my location to the UK. I refresh Netflix, and guess what? 
all of the UK Netflix shows show up now. It's amazing. And that doesn't just work with Netflix. It works with any streaming service, Hulu, BBC, iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. You can watch pretty much anything that you want because ExpressVPN sends all your traffic through whatever node that you choose. And it basically makes it appear that you are in that country. It's very cool. And there are hundreds of VPNs out there. But the reason that I like ExpressVPN to watch shows is that it's so fast. There's no buffering. There's no lag. You can stream in HD, no problem. And it'll work on all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, obviously your computer, and so much more. So we have a special link for you guys. It's ExpressVPN, and that's just spelled Express, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, expressvpn.com slash roadwork. You go there, you will get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So hang on a second. It's free for three months, and you're supporting the show, and you can watch what you want, and protect yourself, all the security stuff that comes with a VPN. Kind of a no-brainer. And shame on you if you uh, if you don't get this while it lasts. ExpressVPN.com slash roadwork. Thanks very much to them for making this show possible. But I think what happened was, I remember I was, I, uh, I had gone, I was out partying or whatever, and I had ended up back in this apartment. I could still, I could, I could take you to the apartment now. And I, I, I remember waking up and I hadn't opened my eyes yet. I was laying there on the floor like, oh shit, I'm on the floor of this person's apartment. Like I could put myself where I was. Mm -hmm. I was like, it's a work day. So not a, it's not a stay home day. And I'm waking up naturally, not by an alarm. Right. And I could hear, you know, people bustling around in the room. Uh And so without opening my (laughs) eyes, I was like, uh, what time is it? Right. And, uh, and this girl, Kirsten said, it's like 1045 or something. And, you know, most of the people that I knew were working in bars or, you know, their, their work day started at 5 PM, but I was working in an office and my right. work day at this point started at 8 AM. Right. Right. And I was like, Oh man, I am so fired. And Kirsten said, do you want to call? Do you want to like use my phone and call? your work. And I was like, it's so, so past that at this point, like to call them at 1045 and say, Hey, sorry, (laughs) I got, uh, you know, I got sick or whatever, you know, like just no chance. And so I was just laying there on the ground, kind of defeated feeling like I still hadn't opened my eyes feeling like, Oh man, I did it again. Like that wasn't such a bad job. I didn't like getting up at eight, but you know, it paid well It work. It was working, but it's gone now. And as I was sitting there, I, I feel this thing on my lips and I hear a lighter go, you know, and I realized that she was putting her pipe in my mouth and just like, might as well, might as well toke it up, bro. And without even opening my eyes, I was like, yeah, well, might as well, <laughs> might as well just get, just do a little wake and bake and yeah. 
you know, start a new life. And I'm pretty sure that the only way that that $350 odd check could have survived unto this day without having been cashed was that it was my final paycheck. Mm. It arrived in the mail at a time when I had an address and I took that envelope assuming that it was some bad news or letter of reprimand right. from that business. Right. And I tucked it into a, a book or some, you know, put it in with a bunch of other envelopes I didn't want to open. Not realizing that it was this, this incredible like honeypot. $350. Oh, that's huge. Damn. What year was this Damn. again? What year? That would have been 94. That's a lot of money. Middle of 94. It was a lot of money. I mean, I was, before I joined Harvey Danger, the most money I ever made in a single month was like $900. And I remember, I remember seeing my pay stub and realizing that I had made like $940 that month and mm -hmm. feeling like, wow, look at me. You know, you're, that's almost $10,000 a month. And no, that's almost $1,000 a month. $1,000, Dan. That's like $12,000 a year. That's a lot of money. Which felt at the time like, I knew that there were people making a lot more money than that, but for me, $12,000 seemed like, uh, oh, oh yeah. I mean, that was a lot. That my was a first, lot of, lot my of cash. first full-time job out of college, professional job doing, you know, what, what I in theory had gone to college for kind of was $21,500. And this would have been in 1994, three, four. Yeah, you were raking it in full timer. I mean, that was bank. That was like, mm. I would walk into a restaurant and be like, I could order anything off this menu I wanted. You know, you walk into a Sears and be like, <laughs> I could buy that lawnmower if I want to buy that lawnmower. <laughs> but I don't want to. That's the only reason I'm not buying it. It's not because I can't. I don't want to. Well, and this is interesting because we're talking about, we were talking about $1983. Let's talk about $1994. Right. Nineteen ninety four dollars. Uh, the inflation calculator says that uh, nineteen ninety four dollars worth a dollar seventy six now. So if you were making, did you say twenty one thousand dollars? Twenty one five. Twenty one thousand mm -hmm. five hundred dollars in uh, nineteen ninety four dollars. Is uh, thirty seven thousand nine hundred and thirty four dollars today? Right, and I mean, keep in Which, mind before that, John, the most I had ever made was three dollars and sixty five cents an hour. <laughs> that was that was like that was yeah. like my 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 income. I remember when I started my first job at Burger King when I turned thirteen, three dollars and fifteen cents an hour, I think, and three thirty five is what I started making at. Uh, Publix when I started there. And by the time that I'd spent a few years there, I'd gotten so many raises. I was up to like 365. It was amazing. Well, according to this, uh, the, um, the census bureau claims that the annual median personal income 
in the United States in uh, in 2016 was $31,000 a year. The per capita disposable income was 45000 mm. uh, as of 2019. So in... In that job, making what is equivalent to thirty-seven thousand dollars a year, then you would have been, you would have been like right around the median personal income, um, uh, 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 equivalent to now. Probably then, yeah, twenty-one five. That would have been that was some that was some hot stakes for for young people. I wasn't working like full that? time. Yeah, I mean, I was. I was. I knew I was only working part-time. I was doing that for a reason because I, you know, I had more important things to do. I had bigger, bigger fish to fry. But when I joined Harvey Danger, they paid me $10,000 over the course of six months. Oh, that's awesome. It was incredible. That's and I, and mind boggling. But, but they were also paying for my transportation, my housing, and my food. So this was ten thousand dollars that was like pure profit. All, all went into the bank, and I spent five thousand of that ten thousand dollars making the first long winners record. Wow! So at that point in time, that ten thousand dollars was a uh, was not just the most money I'd ever seen, but like an unfathomable wealth and just think about this john nothing literally literally nothing that i made from that time or really anything except very recently is still around and yet that album still around people still listening to it people still love it still around that was part of the part of what made making that western state record this past year so gratifying because it cost money to do and cost time but it was so much better, so much better for me, so much healthier for me than going on vacation because it cost the same amount as having gone on, gone on vacation. But it was, you know, it was, and it felt like a vacation, but it was like a time travel vacation. And I made this thing that made me happy. So I've been thinking about that a lot in the context of what's going on right now, coronavirus times and whatever else and feeling like I've watched a lot of my friends kind of go online and, and play shows, you know, online shows like, Hey, I'm going to do some songs. And I've, I've kind of felt like that's not, that's, that's kind of not the type of entertainer I am. You know, I would, I, I could surely do it. I could sit in front of my computer and play five songs and right. put it on Instagram. Um, but it's just never the way I've thought about my, my, it's just not, not how I think I'm not, I'm not a musician in that way. Um, where, where, you know, have guitar will travel. I just don't, I don't think that way. You know, I, I, I follow Jason Isbell and, he does think that way. And every day he's on there, he's got this beautiful guitar and he's like, yeah, here's what I was doing. And he just, he gives us two minutes of himself playing the shit out of his guitar. <laughs> and, and I love it. I'll, I'll eat it right up. But the idea of going on and like, okay, everybody, like every day I'm going to just give you two minutes of me just playing the, 
playing the not quite playing the shit out of this guitar, playing the green beans out of this guitar. <laughs> and I think people would think it was fun or funny, but uh, it it wouldn't be what I would do. But I really, really have been feeling so strongly that this that trying to move to a new neighborhood and leave my old farm behind, it was all part of this this idea that I was that I was going to find some freedom from the things that overburdened me and become productive. And the, the productivity that is suggested by this Corona opportunity, which is not to say that coronavirus is an opportunity. And I have not at all felt like being sequestered or quarantined is like a fertile time to get to work on stuff by Corona opportunity. I mean, that the whole thing, the whole shakeup has been such a revelation mm-hmm. in terms of not how fragile things are because things are, have proved to be pretty resilient, but how easy it was to just shut everything down. How at the time it felt like, wow, are we really doing this? I guess so, but now looking back and thinking all it took was that the governor of Washington said, everybody stay home. And there was about a week where people were like, what, really? And the governor was like, yeah, everybody stay home. And then all of the bosses of all the companies with, uh, except a very few said, okay, everybody stay home. Yeah. And everybody stayed home and nobody drove, nobody went anywhere or did anything. And it, it was all, I mean, obviously a, a crazy disaster in a lot of ways, but really fundamentally not a crazy disaster. Everything has kind of muddled along now for a month of not of no one doing anything and that's a, that's astonishing it's yeah. astonishing yeah how much it reveals about how little what we were doing before was necessary right. how much of it actually didn't matter at all didn't matter we don't actually need that's such a good point you're making <laughs> all those freaking cars right we don't need those cars we don't need so much of what we were doing before and it and and what it what it does is it 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 highlights how much all of our modern american and global human endeavor is just busy work is just a a a, a, a total fantasy about what we're doing why we're here what matters what we're building you know it's busy work and so if we don't need cars, um, obviously there need to be some cars, there needs to be some transportation, there need to be, you know, vehicles, but we don't, every one of us in the morning need to get up and get into our own personal car and drive to work and drive home. And we always knew it. We always knew it. Mm-hmm. It just felt that not, no one of us could do anything about it. You can't just not, not go. But we could, at the drop of a hat, 
all of us just collectively decide not to go and then it and then it's over and really it's over right like i it's not a thing sitting here at my house and thinking about it it's not a case where this feels like a temporary situation where I'm building up a thousand errands that I haven't run yet. And the day that they release us from quarantine, I'm going to have to run out and, and put out 50 fires. Right. It really doesn't feel like that. It feels like most of the stuff that didn't matter is gone. The stuff that does matter found a way. (laughs) And, you know, if they rolled, if, 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 if quarantine lasted another year, I could, I, I, and, and I gradually could, could allow a few more friends or, you know, you could go to the movies if everybody sat 15 feet apart or whatever, you know, like this gradual kind of rolling back of civilization. It's fun. And, you know, the, during the the 80s and early 90s the environmentalism that we were practicing at the time which had not really factored global warming in quite yet we understood that climate change was a component of it but it didn't seem like it was fatal but we would have these arguments with people where we would say, look, in order to save this ecosystem here in Western Washington, we're going to have to tear down the Elwha Dam, or we're going to have to not log this particular forest because the owl, this little owl, this is the only place the little owl lives. And so we're going to use that little owl as a proxy. Nobody cares about the little owl, but we're going to use the little owl as a proxy. <laughs> To say uh-huh. <laughs> you can't shut down this, you can't cut down this forest because the Endangered Species Act we passed for some other reason. We weren't thinking about this owl at the time. We passed the Endangered Species Act, and then we added this owl to that list. And now we're going to try and use the teeth of the Endangered Species Act, which we passed in order to save the bald eagle. We're going to use the teeth of that to try and save this forest based on this little owl that nobody cares about. And the argument from people, the the argument from the other side was entirely economic, right? How are these lumberjacks going to survive? How are these communities, these rural communities going to survive if you take away their livelihood, which is the forests? And if they can't harvest forests, all these little towns, Randall and Packwood, they're all going to all these people are going to be out of work and they're all going to die was the, you know, is the, the, they don't, they don't really care about the wood either. And their version of hyperbole is we're all going to die from this, right? You're going to take away the livelihood of all of these people. And at the time, and, and and I've talked about this during my, my, uh, run for city council when I went in in to the carpenters union and they told me there were 50 carpentry jobs or whatever, 50 union jobs on that oil, oil, oil rig. And what were those carpenters going to do if I, if I was against the, the, uh, you know, Arctic oil exploration, what were these 50 carpenters going to do? And I, (coughs) and I felt like those 50 carpenters are going to have to find other work. And that, you know, that lost me that union endorsement. But in the, in the environmental years, we were always positing 
or we were there was always this false combat between these two sides one group of people who were pretending to really care about a bird when what they really wanted was to stop clear-cutting forests and the other side was pretending to hate a little bird because what they really didn't want to have to do was find another job or didn't you know didn't feel like they were able to find another job but we look now back where we have the benefit of 30 40 years now and you can go to packwood today and randall those towns are still there those people are still there they aren't affluent towns but they never were and most of those forest jobs are gone and they're not gone because of the spotted owl they're gone because most of the you know the most of the forest harvesting became mechanized and most of the lumber got shipped immediately to asia without being processed in the us so you know that old battle between hippies and loggers ended up <laughs> ended up resolved <coughs> excuse me there, there's so much pollen in the air right now oh yeah <coughs> i can't even it's un it's unbelievable i can't even walk outside no it's horrible here too but you know we're we're in a uh, we're in a state right now with this shutdown where there are a lot of people <coughs> god damn it <coughs> oh pollen <coughs> it's either pollen or coronavirus i think it's pollen i'm gonna say it's pollen it's pollen <clears throat> um there are a lot of people that aren't going to be able to work from home right there are a lot of people right now who are out of work and the argument for restarting the economy, for getting it back to going as fast as we can, is premised on the idea that the jobs that everyone was doing that they can't do from home are these super essential jobs that we need to get those people back to work. When what it really is, is we have all these people who need to earn an income to pay for their housing and their food. <clears throat> the work that they were doing, maybe, you know, the people that are doing essential work, like working in grocery stores and gas stations and whatnot, they're still working. And then there are the, then there's the whole white collar cadre that are all working from home just happily now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's the, it's, the like the median work somewhere between essential and and the truly inessential work of, of white collar labor where all of the kind of busy work of the modern world takes place and it's you know it's it, it's one of the um it's one of the things that makes a universal basic income so kind of uh philosophically appealing because we're in a we're in this state of pure potential right now what if we didn't go back to work what if there were you know what if 
what if we made an income available to people so that they could weather out this period and gradually go back to work in a new way, in a different way, in a way that does not require that, um, that 50% of us wake up in the morning every day and get and warm up our cars and go to the drive through coffee shop on our way to whatever it is that we were doing before. And so I can't believe that we're going to go back to work the same way. I just can't believe it. I know that a lot of people will have to because they have to put a chicken in the pot. Right. But there are a lot of people that don't have to or won't have to unless there's a, there's a massive collective failure of imagination, right? Like my daughter's mother works in an office where they rent the entire floor of a downtown office building. There are 300 employees. They sit, they sit in an open office plan at computers uh, around a central kitchen hub where there's uh, there are bins full of Cheerios and M&Ms and a microwave to heat up your hot pot or hot pocket. Mm-hmm. There's some meeting rooms with glass walls that are stuffy and unventilated. And there are floor to ceiling windows all around with beautiful views of the Pacific Northwest and elevators that require that you put in a code and a, three people that sit at a front desk in security guard uniforms. You know, it's the whole American office thing. Well, that company has gone completely work from home and everything's fine. They're still generating the, the same still number. Continues. Of, they're still able yep. to get their work done. Uh, deadlines met payroll yep, paid. They're, they're, uh, they're generating as many marketing leads as they were before or right. more. Right. They are, uh, they're increasing, you know, they, they have new customers buying their product coming online all the time have, have been throughout this whole process. They're having an awful lot of freaking zoom meetings, but it all is working. So for that company to, for the, for the CEO of that company to, to not look at that and go, Wow. You know, when we're looking at things to cut, when we're looking at costs to take out of the bottom line, why are we paying for this office building? Why are we, you know, why did we have a $90,000 budget just to send 15 people to the Black Hat conference in Las Vegas last year? Right. To, you know, to put on a, to have a booth where we handed out whimsical t-shirts and tried to get people to sign up for our mailing list. Like, isn't there a way to rescale all of that? And so, but the thing is that the CEO is not imaginative because they're a CEO by definition, they're not. (laughs) And so when the the thing is lifted, when the quarantine is lifted, that CEO is going to say, everybody back to the office. And they're not going to want to go, are they, John? Well, some of them will. Some of them will be like so glad to get back to their desk and to put their little bunny rabbit back on next to their phone and to 
you know, some fresh cut flowers and they'll be like, hey, we're back. But boy, Dan, half of those people are going to be like, do I have to? Why? Do I really have to? Do I have to drive 45 minutes both ways to get to work and find a parking spot and sit in and then at lunch, go out and wait in line at a teriyaki place? Like, really? I don't want to, they're going to say. And it's going to be so hard for that CEO to say, well, business can't get done if you don't, because business can get done. If I worked in that office, Dan, I would already be writing up my proposal to be a, a work from home person. Yeah. After this is all over. I used to, I just remember when I was in the corporate world, all I ever wanted was to work from home. I used to, I used to know exactly how much time I spent getting ready for work, driving to work, getting in, and the amount of time that I spent being distracted by from other people going to meetings that went on too long because so many people just liked the meetings. I mean, I spent a decade doing that. And it every time I'd be, you know, I remember there was a I had a side business building PCs for people for many, many, many years. Did you really? Oh yeah. I started custom with, Dan Benjamin PCs. Yeah. I had so two, two or three different companies doing it. I actually was doing that before I, um, like toward the end of high school, I had started my own business doing that. And then I, I kept coming back to it whenever I would need extra money. Uh, I would just start doing it. So all you needed to have, and it's probably the same today. You don't even need that. But back in those days, you could go to the, they had these sort of like, they were always run by Chinese people because I think most of these components were, and I'm not, this is not a, I'm not like making a stereotype. There were like three stores in, in Florida. And then later when I moved to North Carolina and then uh, in, um, in central Florida, it was the same thing. They were always owned by Chinese people. And they ran a great business because I guess they had connections in China and they could get all of the parts, like the motherboards, the RAM, the hard drives, everything was made in China. So for whatever reason, so they barely spoke English, but you could go in there, you could get a, a business license, which costs something like $35 a year. And that would make you eligible to buy parts tax-free from these people at uh. basically their prices. So you know, the regular, uh, you know, jokers on the street would pay, you know, 200 bucks for a hard drive and you'd get it for 30 bucks. Uh-huh. And, and then I, you know, I knew already how to build these things. So I built PCs for people and then I would, I would sell them at very, very discounted prices compared to what you get from gateway or, or, uh, you know, the companies that were out at that time. And, it was really a fun business. It was a neat business. I got to meet interesting people. I got to build all kinds of crazy computers because they tell me what they wanted. But I remember going to my job and using a computer that was half as fast as the one that I had at home. And this is back in the, like, we might say, oh, our computer feels slow now. Like, it's slow maybe if you're compiling some huge program or if you're exporting a video in 4K, like, yeah, it's going to feel kind of slow. But this is back when just like opening and closing <laughs> windows was slow. You know, like this is right. this is like the difference between a 486 and a Pentium was ridiculous. And like I had the best computer sitting on my desk at home and I would always say to my boss, like, I'll be more productive 
if I could work from home. You'd let me work from home one day a week or half mm. a day a week or uh, half a day, a few days. In there. No, no, no. You know, and I used to have bosses that used to say, and more than one boss said this to me, if we can't see you, you're not working. Right. And that was always what I was told. If I can't see you, Dan, you're not working. I'm going to say, Isn't well, what about when you go into your office and I'm in here, you can't see me. <laughs> you know, I looked at, I, I looked at the web all the time. I would sit there and browse the web and read stuff. And because I had a modem and they had made, they, because I was like the internet guy. So they had right. a dedicated phone line that was between me and the VP of the company. And he would go online like once a day at about 4 PM to check his email. So the rest of the time, I, w- I had my computer plugged in and I would dial up. I had my own dial-up account at uh, magicnet.net uh, back in the I old know. days. That was... Um, Magic.net.net. Yeah. And I would dial up and I would, I would you know, read stuff on the internet. And, and of course, I needed to because I maintained the web. I built and maintained their website and all of that stuff. But I just... They didn't know what the hell I was doing in there. Could have done anything. Could have been looking at uh, porn the whole day if I felt like it. They would have no idea. Right. The fact that whether I was sitting there typing code from my house or or in front of their computer in their office, it didn't matter. But that attitude is still there. It's exactly what you're saying. It's it's there. There are people who believe that you need to be in a in the same physical location to do a job. And it, for a lot of people, it's there, they get a lot out of the social interaction of being in an office. They, there are not like my son right now, he's, he does not enjoy this remote schooling that's going on. He thrives if there, he's like a German shepherd. He needs structure. He needs to know what the rules are and he needs to understand that there is, there are some kind of people at a higher level of him who are, who are in charge of the rules. If he's just left to his own devices, he will only ever play video games and watch YouTube. Uh, and, right. and he, there's nothing about him, at least right now at his current age, that makes him wake up and like want to get the stuff out of the way so he can have the right. He, he's a natural born procrastinator. And, uh, and, and these are traits I, I see in myself that I've had to work against and, and overcome consciously in my own life. And right now he's kind of, you know, he's kind of struggling cause it's like, well, yeah, like I could do the Spanish assignment or I could not do it. And there's, he's, you know, when he's put in the classroom, he does exceptionally well. He responds very well to instruction. He, he, he gets it. He gets it quick. And he can do everything that he needs to do and he gets good grades. But when he's just sort of like, well, we, you know, we sent you the email showing you what you're supposed to do today. He, you know, mm, like, will, yeah. will he do it? So what his thing now is he waits until, you know, eight o'clock at night and then he'll work on it for half an hour, an hour. And he'd be like, I'm too tired to do this anymore. <laughs> I got to set, I'm going to set my alarm because he has a, he has a G-Shock watch. I'm going to set my alarm for six o'clock in the morning. And so he'll wake up at six and do it before it's due at eight in the morning. Really? Like, why not just he do, does it do that though. after? Yeah, he does it. Uh, well, then it doesn't matter when he does it, if he does it. But he, it does matter because <laughs> at night when I'm there after, after you know, at the end of the day, he's all stressing out about it. 
Oh, well. He's stressing out about it, and then he's going to wake up early in the morning, and, you know, it, he doesn't want to do that. Let me ask you this. As a, as a corporate mm-hmm. uh, person who's been in, in corporate life at least more recently than I have, yeah. <clears throat> is, there, is there not a way to, um, to measure people's performance? Yeah, in plenty I of mean, ways, lots of ways. Are are there are there jobs are there jobs where you can be doing your work very effectively and there's no way to measure it? Yes, I say yes, absolutely. And so what is that? Give me an example of that. Somebody who's doing a really good job, but there's just no way to quantify it or or measure it quantifiably. An example of that? Yeah. You know, I, what I can say is that there are, there have been, I've, I've been writing code software development for so, so, so long. And I can tell you that at least for me, and I've, I've talked to other developers, they seem to agree with me, is that it, it almost comes in waves. It's almost cyclical in a sense of you'll kind of be heads down being very productive for a period of time. And then it's almost like you'll, you'll ease off the gas for a bit. And it's not like you're coasting, but you're kind of coasting uh, on right. the work that you just did. But so much of software development, if you were to look in a creepy way at a software developer, we spend a lot of times just sort of staring at our text editor. I mean, just not typing anything, maybe not even reading anything, just sort of on what it would appear that we're zoned out, but we're actually thinking hard about something but how do you measure that i guess you measure it if what you know does does the application perform the tasks it was required to perform according to the specifications document on the date that it was due right did did that happen yes but did but did it take you one week of intense work or did it take you two hours a day for two months did it happen the night before does that matter as long as it does what it's needed it needs to do on the day that it was supposed to be due and that's that's the struggle with something like that it's not like somebody who's like working in a help desk who can answer tickets and you can say this person had this many tickets that were positively received in an eight hour period. Therefore they're a good employee, but this person had half as much. Therefore they're a bad employee. But even then you can't know because maybe the tickets that the second person got involved more research or involved longer explanations to the customer, or maybe they were dealing with a cranky customer. So like even there it's, it's hard. Even when you have a metric to use, it can still be difficult. But, but we're, but we're, uh, we're saying somewhat separate things. I mean, my mom, when she talks about computer programming in the 1960s, yeah, she said that there was the, the best programmer at the company where she worked, which was Safeco Insurance. She said the best the best programmer was a, a woman named Elaine, and Elaine had you know hair down to below her belt, like this this long haired hippie lady. Nice. And she said Elaine would sit and stare out the window for weeks never touching her computer, never touch, not looking at a pen and paper, but just staring out the window. Mm-hmm. And I was always fascinated by Elaine uh, because Elaine was, was um, she was very kind of, you, you could tell she was a very special person. She had a twin sister also mm. uh, who was, who did not have this strange magic, but she said no one in, and this was a, this was in the sixties, right? Where everyone 
um, where at her company, at least like you could not undo the top button of your shirt during the work day. Oh, like wow. don't loosen your tie here. Right. If you loosened your tie, someone would come along and say, <laughs> Uh, what has happened? You know, like what's the matter with you? Get, get, get yourself together, man. So everyone was, it was an extremely like old school IBM corporate environment. She said, no one ever bothered Elaine. No manager asked her what she was doing. Nobody ever questioned the fact that she was sitting and staring out the window because when Elaine finally turned to the terminal, she typed up, perfect, elegant, efficient code that needed almost no, you know, that never, that never failed, you know, that, that needed no refinement because she had done it. She had done it all in her imaginarium. She just worked out everything. That's exactly, exactly what I'm saying. I knew, I knew a guy like that, um, who was a more senior developer than me. I learned a lot from him and Anytime I would look over at his cube, he was sort of like on the row behind me. I could turn around and look. He would just be sitting there staring at his screen, just staring at the white screen and not typing anything, just staring there and looking. And it's just like you say, like then he would sit down and in kind of a flurry of activity over the next couple of days after, you know, like a week of essentially doing nothing, he would type great code. Right. And uh, but so what we're what we're describing is. <clears throat> measurable it's just on a longer time scale right like not yeah. everybody's job can be measured on an hourly basis very true or even a weekly basis maybe not even on a yearly basis depending on how big a scale it is you're you're working with right mm-hmm. i mean if you are if you are sitting and working on string theory you might not do anything visible for a decade mm-hmm. um but everybody can be Everybody, if if they're working with a custom scale, if the person that's or if the person or system that's evaluating them has customized the scale to the work that's being done, they there is a way to measure it. Unless you are somebody whose job is inspiring people, right? Like if your job is to inspire, or if you think your job is to inspire people, and this is the thing, there are very few jobs, actual jobs where the description is, we want you to inspire people. A lot more jobs have other descriptions and the person that's doing the job thinks the description is that they're there to inspire people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But if you, if your only job was to inspire people, then you have to assume that in measuring those people, there would be some way to measure your performance. Mm-hmm. And what we do instead is measure time spent, as, as you say. You know, like if you're not in the office, you're not working. Which is not a measurement of the work. It's a measurement of the, of the time in captivity. Mm-hmm. And you should, you should be able to, anyone should be able to make the case. Here's the amount, here's the number of tickets that I handled when I was coming into the office every day. And here's the number of tickets I handled during coronavirus when I was stuck at home. Right. And I think there was a 40% increase in the number of tickets handled. Ergo, I do not need to come into the office. I mean, if you can't make that 
if you can't make that case, uh, maybe you do need to be in the office. Maybe you do, do need parental guidance. I mean, and there are a lot of people who get, like I was saying before, that a lot of their social interaction comes from no. being at I work, know. being in the office, talking. They they love it. They love to hang out there. They want to be know. there. They want to, you know, they, the, you know they, should, they should join. They should join like a like a softball team or something. There are a lot of people that got that. I I remember um, a very good friend of mine for many years, like his social life, you know, came from and, and, and was formed in the office. Those people were his friends. They were a similar age. They were similar demographic as far as like, you know, hobbies and interests. And, and that's where he really, really thrived. And he had worked from home independently for a couple of years and just didn't like it, you know? And when he was in an office, he's like, this is where I want to be. Like he, he liked well, so, it, you know? So this is my question to you, right? Because those people <clears throat> are also typically not super self-reflective, right? The people that can't wait to get back to the office are not the ones who are, they do not typically think of themselves as the weird ones, Right, people that want to work from home that don't want to go into the office, mm-hmm. even if they were in the majority, also tend to have the personality type where they think I'm the weird one. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go into work. I know, I know, I'm the I'm the problem here. People that want to go back to work, that are excited, that their friends are all there, they are also the ones that think that's normal. So those people, it's just a, it's just the question of self-reflectiveness of introverts versus extroverts. And I know it's not a, you know, it's not a perfect system. There are plenty of self-reflective extroverts and plenty of introverts that aren't self-reflective. But generally, I, I fear that there's going to be that all of the extroverts are going to rush back into the world. Yay, we're back. Let's get, <laughs> yeah, let's they get are. The, Turn the lights on. Oh my God. It's so great to be back at work. And they're going to drag the introverts kicking and screaming back to work, except introverts would neither kick nor scream. They slump over in their Eeyore shoulders and go, oh, I guess I got to go back to work. We would like to say thank you very much to Audible for making this show possible. Paul Rudd, the ageless, amazing Paul Rudd, leads an all-star comedy cast in a a new show. This is an audio comedy on Audible. I know we think of Audible as having books, and they do, of course, but they now have new, unique content. This one's called Escape from Virtual Island. Like I said, it's a scripted audio comedy. It's written by John Lutz of SNL and 30 Rock, which means it's funny. Rudd is joined by Jack McBrayer, Paula Pell, Amber Ruffin, and a ton of your comedy favorites in this genre-hopping madcap comedy adventure. It is set on a remote luxury resort island in the year 2038. Adventure seekers go there to live out their wildest fantasies in a custom-made virtual reality simulation. Sounds fun, but of course something horrible, terrible happens and it becomes very funny, and you should listen to it. Escape from Virtual Island. You can listen free with a 30-day trial. We're giving out free stuff today, and I love it. 30-day free trial. Go listen. It's at Audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E. Everyone knows that. Audible.com slash Virtual Island. That's where you go to listen. And if you're one of the people that likes to text things, you can text the words Virtual Island to 500-500 and start your 30-day free trial that way. I don't know who does that or why you'd want to. I would just go to audible.com slash virtual island, but both work. So go check it out. And thanks very much to Audible for making this show possible.
And I'm, I just wonder whether there's not, I honestly think that, that this could be a time period where, for instance, downtown Seattle massively shrinks in terms of, in terms of it being a hub of business activity. A lot of those office buildings get repurposed as housing. And the offices that are there are concentrated in a core and we call it extrovertville and all the happy, <laughs> shiny, happy people can go there and they can have like workout spaces and they can have coffee, you know, like pouring out of fountains and they can have pickup basketball games and they can just be having meetings with each other all day long. And then in the buildings surrounding them, which have been converted from office space into housing, all of their coworkers who would rather not, who prefer not to, all the Bartlebys of the world can just be doing their work from home remotely and and it would be and there would be there'd be fifty percent less driving, there'd be fifty percent less busy work, fifty percent less, you know, just showing up. Yeah. Work work would get work would get condensed. It's all the, it's all the dreams we had about personal computers back in the early eighties. Yes. The paperless offices, the heightened efficiency, you know, we'd be, everybody could have a four hour work day instead of an eight hour work day because, because the other four hours used to just be getting up and going to the water fountain and back. I don't know. It's a, it, it still seems, it seems like the, ease with which we've relatively shut the whole world down, not yeah. just Seattle, the entire world shut down with not that much, with almost no coercion, right? I mean, the, the incidences where there were police that had to tell people like, turn around and go home, that was, that ended up being like a few hilarious memes on the internet. There was, mm. no one was forced at gunpoint to go to you know, get off the streets, right? It was just like, everybody stay home. Okay. It's got to be sustainable in some ways, in some proportion. It's got to be, even if it's only 20% sustainable, that's 20% less bullshit mm -hmm. in the world. Let alone if it were 40% sustainable, you know, 40% fewer people driving into work every day, 40% less um less like frantic um sort of make work borderline panic that defines modern like this sort of modern hyper capitalist uh anxiety state that um that it seems like we 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 were living in until a month ago, right? I don't know. I'm excited for it. I'm excited for this reckoning because it can't possibly go unreckoned. I don't work in an office, but if I did, I wouldn't ever again. <laughs> <laughs>